they're making their way to the back, I want to ask the rest of you to get out your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the book of 1 Peter. As you all know, this is the week of Thanksgiving, and uh, I know a lot of us are looking forward to time with families and time of good food and a lot of food. Um, some of us are not looking forward so much to that, but, uh, um, but it's, it's really become a time of, of great traditions for a lot of us. We get together, we have time with family, we eat a big meal, uh, watch football. Some of us have some different traditions in there that, that we work out, but I think sometimes in the, in the, uh, the midst of all of the busyness of, of the Thanksgiving holiday and making plans and preparing meals, I think sometimes we forget what Thanksgiving really is. Um, I can remember growing up and, and uh, you know, and heard about, you know, we always celebrated Thanksgiving, and then when I became a Christian later on in, in college, I came to know the Lord, and I can remember going to church and hearing the word Thanksgiving and thinking it was so odd to hear the word Thanksgiving in reference to anything other than the holiday. And what I didn't realize at the time was that's what Thanksgiving is really about. Um, Thanksgiving, it's giving thanks unto the Lord. When, when, Thanksgiving was begun to be observed as a holiday, it was done so that we would take time out of our lives and give thanks to the one who has made such abundant provision for us in this world and in our lives. And, and God is worthy of our thanks. He does so much for us, so many things that we take for granted each and every day. And yet, as we come into this time of holiday, this time of family, this time of remembering, we need to remember that He is the one who deserves our attention, who deserves our thanksgiving. It is the giving of thanks to Him in order that He might continue to be glorified in us. You know, see, that's really what God's purpose for us is. God's purpose for us is that he would be glorified through us, is to give glory to his name. That's why God created us. You know, there's people all over all the time trying to figure out what's the meaning of life, what's the purpose, why am I here, what's going on? It's not that difficult. You're here for God's glory. You're here to reveal who he is. I mean, the very fact that we exist is a testimony of God's glory. If you think about the complexity of what, of what we are as human beings, it is a testimony to the intelligence of our Creator. When you think about the provision that He's made for us in this world in order that we might have oxygen to breathe and food to eat and all these other things, it, is, it speaks of God's gracious provision. When you think about the reality of sin and our fall and God's provision for a Savior that we might be redeemed, it's a testimony that God desires for us to know His love, His grace, and His mercy. All that we are as human beings is meant to bring glory to God. Even our suffering. Even our suffering. As we've been studying the book of 1 Peter, Peter has repeatedly come back to this theme of the suffering that occurs in the life of a Christian. And we've been, as we started last week in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, we saw that, that as we looked at Peter's uh, offering perspectives on suffering, we saw that suffering was a cause for joy. That's a little bit different perspective when it comes to suffering, amen? amen. And today, we, as we continue in, into verses 
uh, 14 through 16, we're going to begin to look at this other perspective that suffering is a means of glorifying God. It is a path to glory. Suffering was the path that Christ walked in order that he might re-enter the glory with his Father. But it is also the path which is chosen for us in order that we might accomplish the purpose for which God has both created us and redeemed us, that he might be glorified through us. Peter wants us to understand that our suffering is a means for God's glory. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning as we read from God's holy word, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Gracious Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray, first of all, that in all things you be glorified. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, that you would open my eyes and my heart to speak your truth and only your truth. And I pray, Father, for those listening, that they would receive your word. And that all of us together might make application to our lives in a way consistent with your truth, your character, and your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As we look at these few verses this morning, there's two mentions of God's glory, both in verse 14 and then again in verse 16. In verse 14, we see that he tells us that when we're reviled for, the, for God, that we're blessed because the spirit of glory rests upon us. That is, God's glory himself, his Holy Spirit, rests on us. We're going to look at that more closely here in a little bit. Secondly, we see in verse 16 that he tells us that if we suffer... As a Christian, we're not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in that name. Suffering is for God's glory. I mean, I don't think it could be any clearer to us that Peter intended for his audience and God intended through Peter to teach us as we endure the difficulties of this life, as we endure in particular the suffering of following Christ, that is the rejection and the rejection of the world around us because of our faith that we can do so knowing that we are glorifying God, that He is working in us and through us for His own glory. As we look at these 
verses, I want to share with you both the declared reality of glory and suffering and the determined response of glory and suffering. We're only going to have time this morning to focus on the first of these two from verse number 14, the declared reality of glory and suffering. It's a declaration that Peter makes here in verse 14. He says, if you are revived for the sake of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This is a conditional statement, right? Y'all familiar with that from English class? You know what a conditional statement is? It means if this is true, then this is true. So we have to determine, really, as we're looking at this, if we're going to make application to our life, we have to determine and come to the realization whether or not the first part of this is true. If we're going to glorify God in our service to Him and in our lives as Christians, then we ought to recognize that Peter says that we ought to be suffering for His sake. Now we've looked at this from, from the perspective as we've looked throughout Peter's letters in the, in the terms of suffering. We've looked at suffering in very general terms. And we've come to the realization and the understanding that whatever suffering may come into our life, that God can use it as an opportunity for us to demonstrate our faith and for Him to manifest His grace and His glory through our lives. And so we recognize that all suffering is a means by which God can be glorified through us. But as we come to this particular text of Scripture, Peter's emphasis can no longer be relegated just to the general application of suffering in general, but to the specific reality that as Christians we are called to suffer for the name of Christ. That is, we are called to stand for Christ, to proclaim the gospel, to teach of Jesus Christ, and the world will respond negatively to our faithful proclamation. Are you suffering for the sake of Christ? Are you being reviled for His name? Are you making a stand in your life on the premise of God's Word and for the sake of the Gospel so that people notice and know whom you belong to, regardless of what that may cost you. I think the problem in a lot of our lives is we, we haven't, for the large part, experienced a lot of persecution in, in our land, and thank God for that. Persecution is on the rise, and we are grateful for it. But I think it's also led to a sort of a complacent attitude when it comes to standing on the truths of the gospel. Because we've gotten so comfortable in being Christian that once it becomes uncomfortable, we don't really know what to do with it. And it's becoming more and more uncomfortable. And Christians are really struggling to figure out how do we deal with this uncomfortableness that we now find ourselves in in our culture as people are rejecting the foundational the foundational truths on which our country was built. They're rejecting the foundation of the church. They're rejecting the foundation of the truth of the gospel and the things that it has meant for us over the years. And we find ourselves in this place in which we don't really know how to function because we're used to being comfortable in our Christianity 
And now that it's become uncomfortable, we're not certain how to respond. But you know, this isn't anything that we should not be prepared for, not be preparing for, because Christ has repeatedly told us that we will suffer for his name's sake. In fact, if we, we looked at this last week, but when we go back to, to the Gospel of John in chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus said, If you are of the world, the world would if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. You see, when we stand for Christ, when we're faithful in sharing the gospel, when we're faithful in living out convictions based on scripture, when we do the things that Christ has called us to so that we are his faithful representatives in the world, we should expect that the world is not going to respond favorably toward us. The problem is we don't really want to be different. We don't really like being uncomfortable. We don't really want to make a scene. Part of the problem is we've given in in many ways to the lies of our culture. You see, our culture in its changing circumstances and its changing focus has over the years begun to focus its attention on the church and on Christians in particular and seeking to dictate to us how we should behave, how we should think, how we should respond to those that are different. The culture says, if you, Christian, represent a God of love, then how can you possibly speak against anybody else's choices? How can you say that something that somebody else feels is right and is doing is wrong? How can you do that if you claim to represent a God of love because such action is hateful? That's what the culture tells us, that if we stand against what anybody believes to be right for them, that we are being hateful. And, we, and for the large part of American Christianity, I think the church has bought into that lie. We've bought into the lie that standing on the truth of God's word is hateful. We've bought into the lie that to tell somebody that they're doing something that's against God is hateful. Listen, the, the world does not get to determine what is true. The world does not get to determine how we should respond, God has already done that. God, through His Word, has given us a standard of truth. He has given us the standard of what love is. And we need to respond to His standard, not to the world's standard. You see, the world's trying to get us to submit to their, to their own values. The world is trying to get us to come alongside and to give in to their expectations. When God has said, listen, Love is pictured on, in what Jesus did on the cross. And you know what he did? He came to save us from our sin. So you know what's loving? It's to share the reality of the gospel with people who are in sin. Well, how do people know that they need to be saved? They have to know that they're in sin. 
They have to know that they've offended a holy God. They have to know that what they're doing is wrong. See, confronting people with sin and standing on the convictions of Scripture and the truth of God's Word is not unloving. It is not hateful. In fact, if we don't do that, it's the most hateful thing we could possibly do because what we're doing when we don't confront people, when we don't stand for the gospel, what we're doing is we're saying, you know what? I'm comfortable with you going to hell for all eternity. I'm not going to make you uncomfortable for the sake of of making myself uncomfortable just so that you can know the truth of salvation. That is unloving. That is hateful. We cannot give in to the world. We must allow the truth of God's Word to be our foundation and our guide. We must seek to represent the truth of His Word in a way that demonstrates His character. Not according to the world's standard, but according to the standard of His Word, His standard of love, His standard of truth. His standard is represented in His Son, Jesus Christ. His standard is revealed and taught to us by the Holy Spirit as He gives us strength to carry out His will. When we seek to do God's will in His way, when we make decisions that honor Him and intentionally gauge people with the truth of the gospel, we will find a world that is hostile to that reality. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 tells us, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you know that the gospel is offensive to people? I know you know it. That's what makes us so uncomfortable. We know it's offensive to people. But we're so inundated with the culture telling us that we shouldn't be offensive that we fail to carry out our responsibility in sharing it with people. But if we're going to be faithful to God, we can't give in to the desires of the culture. We must stand for the gospel. I get people don't like to be told they're sinful. I never liked it. I'm sure none of you liked it. When someone told you that you were wrong and offensive to God. But without that knowledge, how would you ever come to a place of repentance? How would you ever come to a place of exercising faith? We have to recognize our sin in order that we might be saved. Salvation requires confrontation. Christ came into the world for the purpose of setting us free, for forgiving our sins, for making us acceptable to God, not acceptable to the world. He called us to be separate from the world so that we might serve Him. Our sin separates us from God and yet God in his infinite love and wisdom seeing our separation and our desperation sent his son to be a sin bearer to be a substitute to sacrifice his only son for us that we might be forgiven that our sin might be placed on him and his righteousness on to us 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God sacrificed His only Son in order that we might know Him, in order that we might serve Him, in order that we might be called His children. God did that for us out of His great love for us, and our response more times than not is to give in to the pressures of the world around us rather than to serve the Lord. But when we do, when we are faithful, when we stand up, when we're given that strength, the Lord says that we are blessed. This last week, I went to a meeting about a sport one of our kids is participating in, and and part of the part of this activity involves uh, traveling and uh, tournaments, and a lot of these tournaments are held over the weekends. And I had to go and talk to the coach afterwards and just tell him. I said, you know, my kid's not going to be able to play on Sunday. And uh, he was really kind of a little tongue-tied in uh, his responses, but he was. He said, you know, it wasn't necessarily the first time they encountered that, and he went over, you know, the difficulties that that proposes and those kind of things. And, and um, you see, our conviction as a family and from what we've seen in being in ministry and, and being around the world is that, you know, we can say that church is important, but when we, when we begin to elevate other things over it and we begin to replace it, what we're doing, we can know of its significance and its importance, but what we're communicating to our children when we allow them to allow things to take its place, we're saying, church is important, but if these other things are, these other things are important as well, and basically what we're saying is, ultimately they're more important because obviously we're choosing to do them over doing this. And so that's, that's been our conviction for a long time in, in, in understanding that we you know, we don't want to send that message to our children. We don't want to, to confuse them as far as what the most important thing really is. But at the same time, in going and in talking to this coach, I'm, I'm just going to share with y'all this morning a little bit of my own personal weakness, okay? Because it, it made me uncomfortable. Because I knew that it was different. Because I, I recognize that he's, he's going to look at me differently now. He didn't really know me before, now he knows me, and now I'm making a stand that goes against where he is and what he's doing, and I know he's going to look at me differently. And I'm wondering in the back of my head as I'm having this conversation with him, I wonder how he's going to interpret this. I wonder what he's going to think of me. I wonder how he's going to relay this to other people. I wonder how this is going to come across. I wonder how this is going to affect my kid. I wonder how this is going to impact him. And the, and the relationship he has with his coach. I wonder how, and, and all these things are running through my mind, and, and you know what? And it, and it brings you to a point, and you want to just, you just want to give in because of all the uncomfortableness of it. You say, you, and you want, and you just, you can reason yourself, it's really not that big a deal, you know, we'll just do this. But at the end of the day, is what I'm doing for my own personal comfort, or is what I'm doing to honor the Lord Jesus Christ? 
And so while it may be uncomfortable, it is always worth it. Because as the scripture tells us, we should expect rejection. We should expect being reviled. We should expect these responses towards us. Not to be prideful, not to be arrogant, not to be just to be right, but to honor the Lord, to do what He commands us to, to do what He encourages us to and convicts us to. And when we do, regardless of the response that we get for people, whether it's negative or we're not, if, if it is negative, obviously from the context here, we know that the Lord says that we are blessed. He says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That word doesn't mean to be happy. That's not this word here. There are some words that are translated as blessed in the New Testament that carry the idea of, of happiness and joy and, and those kind of things. This, this word means to have God's favor resting on you. That's what this word means. You see, when we're faithful to the Lord, His favor rests on us. When we follow our convictions as He's leading us in following Him, His favor rests on us. You know, that ought to be enough motivation there to make us endure just about anything, to know that we can be pleasing to our Heavenly Father. I mean, that really, that should drive us in all that we do, just to be pleasing to God. Well, you know, when, when Jesus Christ came to this earth, that was the thing. That was the main thing that drove him to do what he did. And all that he endured and all that he went through and all that he experienced and all that he sacrificed for our sake, he did to be pleasing to the Father. You know how we know that? Well, he pretty much says so. In multiple ways and in multiple places, but in particular, as I was contemplating this, I was remembering Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing his own death, recognizing the pain that he was about to endure, recognizing the difficulty that he was about to face, recognizing the rejection, the public humility, and all of it. Jesus was in the Garden and he prayed, Lord, if this cup can pass from me. Please take it. But not my will, but your will be done. You see, Jesus, it's not that he wasn't concerned about his own comfort. I think the prayer reveals that he was concerned about his own comfort. But he was more concerned about doing the Father's will. He was more concerned about please, being pleasing to him. So just, just that desire to be pleasing to the Father, just that, that reality. And think, it wasn't just the cross either. This, you know, really, when you begin to think about all that Jesus did to be pleasing to the Father, it just really is, is it's mind-blowing. It's mind okay, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, right? The, God from all eternity, Right? He's, he's in heaven. He's with the Father, enjoying perfect union, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect union, perfect love, perfect being glorified by the angels, being worshipped. 
Why in the world would he ever want to leave that? But he did. He left the glory of heaven and took on the form of a man, the form of a servant, and he came into this world for what? To die for us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 says, He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He surrendered all the glory that was rightfully his, in the majesty of heaven and the magnificence that it is, is there to dwell in the presence of the Father, and he left it all for our sake to accomplish the Father's will in order that we might be saved. So now, here we are. We've repented of our sins. We're following Christ. We're trusting in Him to save us. He's redeemed us from an eternity's worth of punishment. Don't you think he's worthy of our testimony? Isn't he worthy of our faithfulness? Isn't he worthy of us pursuing to represent him in all that we do? You know, the the same people who would mock and ridicule us for our faith, those are the same people, I'm going to put it this way, we were part of that same group of people at one time, if not for the grace and glory of God. We were part of that group that would do the ridiculing. We were part of that group that would do the rejection. But God, in His grace and His mercy, saved us. And how did He do it? He did it because somebody was faithful to share the gospel with us. Somebody was faithful to step outside of what made them comfortable, and they were faithful to proclaim the truth of God's Word. And that's what He wants us to do. He wants us to be faithful. He wants us to be faithful so that the blessing that he has bestowed upon us, the favor that he has given us, might be manifested in our lives. Look back at verse 14 with me. He says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because, I love it, he doesn't just tell us that we're blessed, but he he goes on to explain how we're blessed. He says, because the spirit of his glory Excuse me, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, when Peter refers to the spirit of glory and of God, he's not talking about two different things. I just want to be clear. I don't think there's any confusion among us, but I want to be clear that he's not talking about two different things. The spirit of glory and the spirit of God, they're, they're the same thing, okay? It's just two, two references to give really two pictures of how God's favor rests on us in, in the form of the spirit. First of all, you have the spirit of glory. This is, that, this is a reference to that Old Testament imagery of God's presence, of the, the cloud of fire by day, and, and, or cloud of fire by night, and cloud of, I can't even speak now, column, pillar, thank you, the pillar of fire by night, and the pillar of cloud by day that led Israel out of Egypt. It was the presence of God. It's referred to sometimes as the Shekinah glory of God. It's, it's God's visible presence. It was that presence that was manifested when Solomon dedicated the temple in in such a way that that the 
the priests couldn't even come in and, into the temple because of the presence of, of God's glory cloud that rested upon it. In 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11, it says, It happened when the priests came from the holy place. The cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That same spirit of glory rests on us in our faithfulness to God. God manifesting His presence through us in our faithfulness. God manifesting excuse me, manifesting His presence through us in our endurance, in our perseverance. But it's not just, it's not just the spirit of, of glory. It's not just His presence being manifested, but it's also His power being manifested. That's why I believe Peter says not just the spirit of glory, but the spirit of God. In the Old Testament, when we read uh, about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it looks a little bit different than it does in the New Testament. You see, as New Testament believers, the Holy Spirit indwells us. That, that, that's a new ministry of the Holy Spirit under the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, that didn't happen. The Spirit didn't indwell people, but the Spirit did rest on people. It rested on people to accomplish God's purposes. We see it in a lot of different, um, in a lot of different people. We see it in certain prophets. We see it in certain judges. We see it when the kings come to power in the land. Uh, we know Saul was given of the Spirit of God, but then Saul, what? Saul rejected God's direction, right? And the Spirit was taken away from him. And when, when Samuel came to David and he anointed him to be king, and this is in 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says he anointed him to be king and he poured the oil on him and it says, and the Spirit of God came and rested on David from that day forward. And you know what David did after that? Like in the very next chapter, David's killing Goliath, right? And then later on, you know, David becomes king. And, and, when, and when David sins against God, when David sins with Bathsheba, and you read about this in Psalm 51, David begins to plead with the Lord not to take his Holy Spirit from him. This, that isn't, he's not talking about losing his salvation. He's talking about the anointing and the power of God resting on him to enable him to carry out the, the responsibilities given him by God. He's basically saying, Lord, I know I messed up, but don't take that power from me. That same power which indwells us also rests on us for carrying out God's will. In that, we are blessed. His Spirit rests on us. It comes to us in salvation, and it rests on us for the glorifying of God as He encourages and empowers us to stand firm in the Gospel. When we are reviled, when we are ridiculed, when we are rejected for the sake of Christ, we are blessed. Because the Lord is manifested through our perseverance and through our obedience. Our faithfulness in honoring the Lord and faithfully sharing the gospel reveals His presence and power at work in us. And I want to close with this verse from 2 Corinthians, these verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 15 through 17. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God.
morning's invitation is simple. Will you commit yourself to standing firm in the gospel for the sake of Christ? Will you endure and face ridicule and rejection for the sake of being a faithful witness? Will you stand firm in the convictions of following Christ and honoring Him in all that you do so that He will be represented in you, whatever it may cost? So what if it hurts your pride? You're a son or a daughter of the living God, the King of kings. So what if people don't understand you and they don't accept you? You're accepted in Christ for all eternity. Whether you're coming, whether you need to make this commitment for the very first time, or whether you're recommitting because you've recognized you've gotten off the path, God is ready to receive you. He's ready to hear from you. And He's ready to strengthen you in your commitment to Him. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we think of Your faithfulness and we know that You are faithful in all things. And we recognize our own faithlessness so many times. But Lord, our desire is not to be faithless. Our desire is to honor you, but Lord, we're, we're in a battle. We're, we're struggling, Lord, against our flesh. We're struggling against the attacks of the enemy. And Lord, our desire, our desire is for you to give us the strength to be bold in our witness, to use us for the glory of your name, for the saving of souls, Lord, help us to stand firm in our convictions. Not, Father, so that the world hates us. I mean, that, our goal isn't to make the world hate us. They, they hate us because we're yours. So, Lord, let us not be overly concerned with their responses as much as with our faithfulness to represent you well. Let us keep our eyes focused on the cross, remembering the sacrifice that was made for us, and help us, O oh Lord, to be faithful, to be faithful to you as you are always faithful to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.